This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome to the podcast today, and today we have Bill Ruth, who is the founding member of Stone Arc Law Office. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing great, Gary. Thank you for having me on. So... What was it that made you want to pursue uh, a career as a, as a state attorney? Uh, well, now that's caught me off guard. That's a good one. Uh, so I, uh, I benefited uh, when I was um, growing up from a, uh, in a, a fractional share of this thing called an, irre- uh, an irrevocable life insurance trust. The result is it paid for some of my law school tuition. And it was fascinating to me that two generations ago, Somebody had created this thing for uh, to benefit somebody who that person didn't even know that my family in turn has received from that. Just uh, what an interesting thing you can do to control a legacy after you're gone and benefit the loved ones of your loved ones. And that's kind of what triggered my interest in trusts and estates. And um, after a five-year, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a career, but a five-year job as a financial advisor, I went back to law school in 2005. Great, great. And um, you've written a book, um, Trustee University, the guidebook to the best practices for family trust. Tell us a little bit about that. When I was my first six years out of law school, I worked as a trust officer. And what that means is I worked for a large bank, which shall not be named, as well as a smaller bank, uh, kind of in the uh, metro here where I, where I live and work. And I took these, these estate plans and I had to make them work after someone had passed away. So somebody had created a trust for kids or a spouse or for a charity or for state tax purposes. And we'd take that document that was drafted by another lawyer and we'd actually do what it told us to do. Uh, we worked with a lot of family trustees who were co-trustees along with us. So we were appointed as being the manager of the trust. That's basically what a trustee is. And then there was a family member who was working on the trust with us. And they very rarely had any clue what they were doing. And that is not their fault. It's just right. they're in a role and, and accepted the role because they're a, a loved family member or a responsible person. And here they are doing a job that they just didn't realize was kind of a job. And it seemed like it would be helpful if I had created a guide for that. And honestly, I started it out as more like a 30 page and it just, there was, there was so much I wanted to talk about that it just turned into this like hundreds of page book, but uh, right. it's out there on Amazon. So, you know, in, in, you know, I've read some of the, some of the books so far and I find it, you know, you know, really fascinating, um, you know, because we do help people um, with the tax returns and things like that afterwards and find out many times that, you know, the individuals do make mistakes, you know, kind of as they're going or just the assumptions that people make aren't always, aren't always correct. Um, 
you know, lots of times I run into individuals that think that, you know, their um, financial power of attorney that they have for their mom also takes care of all of their health directives. Can you talk a little bit, you know, on, you know, the different types of, you know, power of attorneys that there are? Right. Uh, and that's actually another really common question that we get is someone dies, someone will call us and ask if they can be named as power of attorney so they can access all the financial accounts and get the estate distributed. And uh, a power of attorney, as you know, is something uh, that only lasts during life. It is a lifetime document. And the first one to talk about, I think that people think of the uh, most often, and I think what you're referencing here, is a financial power of attorney. And there's a couple types. I'm going to touch on the main two here really quickly. I know there's other questions today. I don't want to, uh, I don't, I, I, I can talk myself into corners because I get very excited. So I'll, I'll, right. I'll talk about these two first. So a financial power of attorney comes in two basic flavors. The first one is common law power of attorney. And this is that thing where you can write whatever you want. I want this person to have access to these bank accounts. I want them to have access to these business interests, this house, if they need to sell it. Uh, and these things are great if we're doing like a business transaction together because we can be very specific and then we give it to the bank or financial company, they send it to their legal department and they give us a yes or no on whether or not they like that document. We don't have to accept it, it's an authorization. That's great for business. That's not great for incapacity planning, which is oftentimes why we're doing a power of attorney. Incapacity planning is, is when you can't make decisions for yourself, who can make decisions for you. Well, obviously, we've created this common law thing with all the specifics on it. The bank doesn't like it. We can't get another signature on that. You're incapacitated. So usually, not every state has this. Many states do, though. Uh, there's another one called a statutory power of attorney, and that comes right out of your state's law. It's language that's in the statute. You can't do any custom drafting for this, so there's not a lot of customization. But you can name the person. Well, your attorney, in fact, the person that's the real name for a power of attorney is your attorney, in fact, who can make financial decisions for you, access bank accounts, access business transactions, insurance transactions, investments, etc. Usually a checklist of, of what powers they can do. You sign it, and now they have access to your, your finances. The nice thing about this is this format in your respective state is probably the format that everybody uses. So it's never going to get to the bank's legal department or whatever the institution may be. They're just going to accept it. So that's a financial power of attorney. It's kind of a high level. And there's even more. There's durable. Durable means it continues to be effective after you're incapacitated. That's what durable means. Um, usually you need a common law. Uh, no, sorry. That, that Usually the, the statutories are durable. There's a springing, which is it's not effective at all until you are incapacitated. So it's not good at all. And then once I'm incapacitated, it, it's and suddenly now somebody has access to my finances. That's gonna be a common law. Almost certainly there are problems. How does that business know that I'm incapacitated? You know, some other questions there. But broadly speaking, that's your financial power of attorney. The next thing is your healthcare directive, also called a healthcare power of attorney, uh, also called a living will. Some states, uh, divide these into numerous documents. Some states combine them into one document. Uh, my state does combine this into one document. The primary thing you really need is to have an agent, and that is your person who can make health care decisions for you. This has nothing to do with the money. In fact, the person making health care decisions for you may not 
have access to paying the hospital billing. That's, that's possible. They're, they're two separate things. One's financial, one is uh, having to do with the human being. So if I'm incapacitated and I'm in a hospital bed, I need someone who can talk to my doctors. I need someone who can make sure I'm getting, I'm, I'm living in a safe place, getting the care that I need. And when there has to be a decision, sometimes a very difficult decision, I need that trusted person in place. So the first part, technically the power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney section is where you're just saying who's in charge. Some states separate this next part out again, some combine it into one document, but the next part is more of your directive. So this is instruction set out on what it is that uh, you want to happen. So typically we're gonna say, this person has the ability to talk to my healthcare professionals. They have the ability to consent to treatment, withhold treatment, access my medical information. Oftentimes we need a HIPAA release. That is potentially document number three. Again, some states, all one big document, uh, so that there aren't any privacy issues with theirs. So we need to authorize them to act on our behalf and access our information. You can also have in here, you know, a preferred doctor, a preferred hospital, anything like that. One of the main things we want to make sure we touch on how people think about end-of-life care. And um, oftentimes, I think when clients come in, the, the term they hear is, is you know, overplug. And uh, I think that's a good way to think about it, but it may not be pulling the plug. But we want to know there's no reasonable chance of recovery. If, there, if I'm in a permanent coma, I have... Uh, I'm incapacitated. I have I have advanced dementia. Dementia has multiple stages, and I'm at the point where I'm I'm not really there anymore. Um, do they have to keep? And that's not euthanasia, but but uh, do do they have to keep me on the ventilator, for example? Right. And can we? Well, uh, so that's all relevant things. You can talk about other things that are important to you. You can talk about I want clergy members present. You can talk about what happens. Do you do I want to be cremated, buried? Do I is there a ceremony or a, a um, a wake of some sort that's important to me. Do I want last rites or some other uh, faith-based attention? And and uh, it's a really useful document. It's a very it's a very important one. I think anybody over age 18 really should have a healthcare director or power of attorney. It's a little softer. It doesn't really go well with like a checklist. So it does require a little bit of thought when you're doing this, whether you're doing it on your own or whether you're doing it with an attorney. There's there's some questions about that. Whether you're on the, the most important thing, naming the right person. Right almost more important than getting granular on the requirements and the things that you So, you know, obviously there, there's, this isn't, um, you know, super simple. Um, and I can see where people, you know, could certainly make mistakes in understanding all of these different, you know, powers of attorneys and stuff like that. Um, besides having the correct power of attorneys and so forth, what are some of the, um, some of the, questions you really wish that the clients would ask you that they don't ask you when they come in and sit down with you? I've uh, fortunately become pretty good at anticipating what people uh, don't know that they don't know. Uh, and, and that comes with repetition, I think. Uh, but uh, there's a couple uh, really big misconceptions that, that you'll hear. Um, one of them is the idea that if you have a will document that your estate will not go through the court system. And that's not true at all. That's, that's actually what a will does. If you, it, it, it controls court. A will is a court document. I, will, I could underline that three times. A will is a court document. If you don't have any documents at all, and you go and, and something happens, you pass away, 
We use your state's backup rules. They're called the intestacy statutes. They, they, they are all built out for you. There's a default estate plan that everybody has. doesn't matter who you are, what you have. Everybody has the same plan. Generally speaking, we want to at least overwrite that. And that is what a will does, is it takes the state's laws, state's rules, overwrites them with your rules. And by virtue of that, you get a big say probate goes, who's in charge, who's the backup, that's your executor or your personal representative, what happens if that person can't act, where does the money go, who gets it, if something has happened to that person, where does it go, we can hold money back from minors until they're 30 or something, whatever you want, um, decide what order bills get paid, uh, it's, it's very, and we can, if we have an estate tax issue, we can manipulate that in some ways with the will, uh, very, very good tool, but I will underline this again, it is a court document. So if I die, we take my will and we submit it to the court system and then we have probate. It has uh, three big drawbacks. Every state's a little different. Um, it can be very expensive. There are certain states like California, New York, and Florida where tens of thousands of dollars to get a family through probate in part because the fees for those are set by statute, they're set by laws. So it's not really an hourly thing. It's just they get this amount. Uh, some states are not like that. My state where I work is not like that. It's just hourly. Something less than 10 grand to get through probate, hopefully closer to 5,000, depending on the state. But they're very, very, it's going to cost money. Where you live is going to be a big indicator of that. And your will is going to require those fees. Uh, another thing that can be frustrating for people is that it takes a long time, potentially. Oftentimes, in every state, every county within your state is, is different. But you oftentimes have to get on the court calendar and the court calendar can be six months out. So meanwhile, the family would like to sell the family home, but they can't do that until they get a piece of paper from the court saying that they're appointed and they have authority to sell the house. So meanwhile, the family is making house payments, property taxes, whatever they're doing, just waiting. And then lastly, it is public. It's the court system. Again, there's a variation by state, but you know, I, I have I have two very little kids at home, and, and there could be concern with people knowing that they're getting money. If we're using the state's intestacy rules, the, the default rules, then that's public, who gets what. And then if we're using a uh, will document, sometimes it can be challenging to get a hold of a will, but oftentimes all you got to do is go to the courthouse, pay a $20 fee, and you can see somebody's will, and, and then they know that. Those are the concerns with probate. I wish that people knew coming in that that's what it was. And uh, there's a lot of myths about it. Sometimes they think it's way worse than it is. Sometimes it's going to be fine. But there's a lack of familiarity with what mechanically actually happens when this happens. And when there's a lack of that familiarity, there can be a lack of understanding what they're asking their fiduciary, their executor, their trustee to do. Uh, so just, you know, I, I cover that with, in front of every meeting, at the beginning of every meeting to kind of get people on board with that. But that's one of the things, just a big mis misconception about what probate is and how to avoid it. Do you, do you want to avoid it? Is it worth it to avoid it? You can avoid probate. Uh, it requires some advanced planning. But um, that's probably the biggest thing that I see is just a misunderstanding of the process. Right. And that, you know, you bring up the, the planning piece, and, and that's something that I am – constantly preaching to you know all of my clients it's like look you know we can we can do much better to help you know lower your taxes and do things like that if we plan so the big thing is okay. is talk with someone talk with a professional before 
you do something. Uh, and, you know, um, I know that, you know, with your book, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, a guidebook and it's there to help people and stuff like that, but it's not, in my opinion, it's not meant to replace you as a professional. So tell me, you know, instead of, hey, I'm just going to read your book and I'm going to know how to do everything. Why is it that someone needs to come to a professional like you uh, to, to get help with their, their estate? One of the things that I, that I hope the, the book would accomplish, and this can be accomplished with a, with a conversation with a qualified attorney as well, is, is what is entailed with planning. It does, it's not going to give you every single aspect of how to do it because everything is just so different. Every, again, every state has different rules and every county within every state potentially has different rules. What, uh, when it comes to probate, for example, there are very specific legal decisions that have to be made. Every state has a different process, but uh, where I am, for example, there's three levels of probate. There's a very informal one, which can be very fast and cheap, but you miss out on some protections and some other guidance from that. There is one that's more formal, and in that type of probate, you get more protections. It's definitely going to be more expensive. And then there's a, there's a really closely supervised type of probate, which is ideal if there's any sort of disputes. Which one of these should you be in? And that can be really challenging for folks. And then once they do it, the registrar or the judge, depending on where you are, might not like the documents you fill out. And you're going to be doing that a few times and you might miss some information. I have had people come in with a probate on their own. And this, is, this might seem like a minor thing, but when you name the person who has passed away, so my name is Philip John Roos, if something happens to me, John Roos is what has to be specifically on every single document. If you do Philip Roos or just Philip Roos on one, now you're walking into a point where if you have to do a real estate deed, you got AKAs, you got to do all this other stuff. And it, it gets on, and that's just one little thing, one little administrative thing. But you get more than a couple of those, and now we start to get a really messed up probate. So you have to be very careful about that. And the same aspect can happen with administration of trust, uh, revocable trust when we're skipping probate. The fees for those are almost universally less to, to, to administer a revocable trust, if there's any fees at all. Oftentimes, the family member can just kind of do it, or they'll try to sell the house, realize it's in a trust. The title company will say, oh, you need to do this, and they do it, and they don't need an attorney. But um, I think, I think, and that, that's if it's a basic estate. There's going to be tax issues. There's going to be distributions from retirement funds that are going to be taxable. There's going to be capital gains to the extent that a, that a joint gift maybe was made in part during life. You know, like there's this rule where your capital gains really go away when you die, which is great. Because if I have a, a building and it's appreciated and then I die, my heirs are probably not going to pay capital gains on that to the extent that there were gains during my life. It's called a step up in the basis, as you know, I know, Gary. Um, but what you'll find out sometimes is somebody added a joint owner about halfway through. And now that joint owner, who's still alive, doesn't get that reset. And, and, and then when they sell it, they don't always know that that person's got gains. You, you run into some of these, it seems obscure, but they're, they're common and they're not necessarily rich people problems. Some of these things, sometimes it's just stock. They put their, their daughter on their brokerage account during their life. Uh, and uh, you know, having a professional, I think to, if nothing else, issue spot, I think is half of it. In fact, even when we're just doing estate planning meetings, not even administration after death, 
just having me there, they might come in thinking they want to give everything to their spouse and their kids, and, and then we do end up giving it to the spouse and the kids, except there's all these other contingencies that we add in there that they didn't even think of. And I think that you probably experienced the same thing. People come in with just thinking they've got ordinary income on their, their, their income tax or something, and it turns out there's all these other things that they just didn't even know they had to think of. Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, especially with, um, you know, with COVID-19 going on and um, some of the changes that have happened in the past year with, uh, with the tax law changes, um, I think it's really going to, to change things. Um, you know, looking at um, ways to protect our assets and things like that are, 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 you know, really important. And from a, you know, you know, in the state standpoint, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, hey, you know, my mom is getting up there in age, she's going to be going, you know, probably into uh, a long-term care facility and so forth. How can we protect her assets so they're not all used up just to pay for the facility? That's a great question. And that is one we get quite a bit. And that is that is an everyday person question. That, that again, is, is not... I think there's a, a misconception sometimes that estate planning and tax planning is something that wealthy people need. And these types of questions are things that affect every family. Every family is concerned about, you know, if I have $200,000 to my name and I'm going to have $10,000 in, in advanced uh, memory care, that's not going to last very long. Can I still leave my kids something? Uh, this is, again, a very state-specific question, so it depends where you are. My state does not give this option. But uh, the state where, where you live, let me back up. Here is, the, here is something you can always do. What we're talking about here is how do we get government benefits to pay for our long-term care? Uh, and, and what I mean by that, this is not Medicare. This is not something we've been paying in for our life. This is something where the general tax fund is assisting us with care. This is part of the safety net. We are all responsible for our own long-term care Costs. We have to pay it. It's just like if you um, chose not to have auto insurance and then you get in an accident, you've self-insured. You're going you're to have to pay for whatever happens there. Uh, so you, you're, you, are, you are responsible for your own long-term care. There's a couple ways to address this. There are various insurance products. Long-term care insurance is certainly one of them. There's also a lot of regular life insurance policies that will have a rider that will give you a few hundred thousand dollars to cover your long-term care for you and a spouse. Those are actually just generally, however administratively challenging some people feel long-term care insurance may be sometimes. Some people just love it. Um, there's a big benefit there. I'll mention a couple of things. I'm not licensed to sell insurance. I'm not selling insurance. This is not something that I would benefit from anybody who's listening to this doing. It's just general, a general opinion. Uh, it, one, of the, one of the challenges with long-term care insurance is not knowing whether I'll need it right. or the converse side, the converse side of that, how much of it I'm going to need. I might not need long-term care at all. I might need long-term care for 10 years. In part, I think that's a wonderful risk to shift onto an insurance company. Uh, it can be expensive to do that, but it's such an unknown. If my house burns down, I know how much I'm going to have to pay if I don't have insurance. That's a set dollar amount, and I can, I can, I can name that risk. I know what my risk is. If I need long-term care, I have no idea. It might be a year, it might be 10 years, there's no way. Um, 
so when it comes to so when it comes to long term care, we are we are responsible for our own our own our own bill. So insurance is one way to do that. If you can get ahead of it, if you can get insurance prior to needing it, that's another problem. Uh, great. There are insurance products I'll mention that it costs a little more upfront, but you can get a refund of your premium if you end up not using it. Uh, called a rider, you won't earn any money on that. But let's say I give a company, I'm going to use a round number. I give a company 50 grand, and they say, okay, you got a couple hundred thousand in uh, in long-term care if you need it. And if you die and don't use it, you get $300,000 in life insurance paid to your family. And next year, we'll just give you back your 50 grand at zero interest. There are products like that. That's where they can eliminate some of that. You do got to qualify for them. You need to do it before you're sick, and that can be hard. Okay, so insurance is one way to pay this bill. Another way to pay this bill is you just pay it. You have your own money, and you're responsible for it. So if you don't have insurance, you're going to have to start kicking out money, or your, your, your family's going to have to start kicking out money until you're broke. And that's how that's that's what our next stage is. Uh, the safety net, the Medicaid, the long-term care government-provided benefit is for people who don't have any money. So if you if you have money, you have to pay for your own your own care or or get insurance. The taxpayer is not going to pay this benefit for people who are able to pay their own benefit. That's what it comes down to. And sometimes the way this is phrased is, how do I keep the insure the 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 nursing care facility, or how do I take, keep the government from taking all of my money? And really, I mean, you're, you're getting a service from a private entity. You're getting care for long-term care, and they are getting compensated for it. Um, you're getting something for it at a steep cost, of course. Once you're broke, that is when this government benefit can kick in. So one of the questions becomes, can I make myself appear broke faster? And there's a couple, the answer is yes. It's not always pleasant. There's not a lot of ways to keep your money and make it look like you don't have money. If you can, if you have access to your money, if you have free access to your money, it's yours. And, and the taxpayer is gonna know that. The, the state government is gonna know that. There's a couple strategies you can use. Every state's a little bit different. In my state, anything that I gift away five years before needing long-term care benefits from the state is not counted. It, it's, it's not money that, I, that has to get clawed back. So let's say I have a million dollars, I give $500,000 to my children now, I'm perfectly healthy, living off my 500 grand um, and my social security and maybe my pension or whatever it is, and then at year seven, year eight, whatever, well past that five-year mark, now I need long-term, I've spent it all, I need long-term care benefits, that's great, I've, I've done it. I've, I made myself broke faster and I was able to get some money to the kids. So lifetime gifting is one way to do that. That's tricky in retirement because you need the money. So how do you time that? Sometimes people have so much money in retirement that there's just no point. I mean, they can give money away, but they're just never gonna spend it down to zero. So it's just all you're doing is, is getting rid of your assets, of your assets. So that's one way is lifetime gifting. Sometimes in some states, not mine, you can create a trust and the trust can severely limit your access to the money. Like you might take the principal, I'm gonna use a round number, I take a million bucks and I put it in this trust. I have given up that money, that is very important. I haven't sort of given it up and I can still take it out if I, if I change my mind. This is a permanent thing, it's gone. 
the trust might pay income to me. Uh, you can also do this with certain annuities. You can give the annuity amount to an insurance company and they convert this into income. Income will not disqualify you from care. It'll be used towards your care, but you, you've gotten rid of the asset. And because you've gotten rid of the asset, whether in this annuity or in this trust, you can keep the income stream, but you're officially broke. You're out of money. So you qualify faster. And then that trust at death would, would pay to your kids, of course. So you're giving them kind of a future gift, but you've eliminated your access to it to the point where you just don't, it's not yours anymore. And because of that, these state benefits would see you as being broke. So it, it, it's one of those things that's really tough to, to plan for. Um, you've heard about people taught, you'll hear your neighbor say, oh, uh, so-and-so, uh, they, they took their house for long-term care. Not usually the case. Usually you can keep your house. If you have a spouse who's healthy, they get to keep the house. They get to keep an additional sum. They don't have to be totally broke. There may be a lien placed against the house that is collected once your spouse sells it or dies years in the future. But the taxpayer really wants their money back for this benefit. So, so that's the thing. And to the extent that you're comfortable doing this, uh, that is definitely something to talk to a professional about. I would not try it on. Yes. Yeah, I definitely. And, and, and again, you know, going back to this, this is keeps going back to planning. Make sure you do the planning. And then like, you, like you've said, this isn't um, just a wealthy person's issue. This is, you know, everyday person. I mean, you know, you have a home and a couple of kids and a job, you know, type thing. You know, it's important to do this planning um, that needs to that needs to be done. You know, what, what are, you know, some of the, the big challenges that, uh, that you're facing right now? Well, I mean, when it comes to what's going on in our, in our, uh, in our country here with, our, with illness and, and some fear, um, yes. one thing that's been a little strange, um, I, don't, I don't know uh, where everybody who's listening to this may be, but I'm in a northern state, and traditionally this northern state almost completely shuts down for the summer because everybody goes on trips. Everybody, uh, the kids are out of school for three short months and it's beautiful outside and it's going to be a very cold winter. So everybody just gets out. And that didn't happen this year. The kids have been out since April anyway. Uh, no one is doing any big traveling. They might be going to some cabins here and there, but they're not taking huge summer trips. So we've had very consistent. It's been very consistent. Usually our business gets very slow estate planning. People don't want to think about the serious stuff until the kids are back in school. And that's not been the case around uh, this year. We've had a fairly consistent level of planning. One of the biggest things that is a concern for people is uh, that going back to the healthcare directive, just making sure that there's somebody there who can make healthcare decisions for you if you become incapacitated. Whether COVID actually, whether you actually get it, whether you actually get it in a way that's serious, is less of the issue, I think, is the peace of mind of, of knowing that that or any aspect of, of incapacity, you're covered. That's what we're looking for. Um, one problem, of course, is many times the people who are the most susceptible to, to the coronavirus are, are the most vulnerable people. And strictly speaking from a frustration as an estate planning attorney, I can do phone meetings and articulate what we need to articulate very well. I'm, I've got just practice. I can do that. I, people understand what I'm talking about. The elderly are less likely to understand Zoom. I think you can understand that. So, so it's probably going to be a phone call if we're not going to come in person. And we take 
precautions as much as we can when there is a vulnerable person coming in. I'd rather they did not. Um, you know, we wipe down everything. We, we obviously masks, obviously sanitizer, and we clean our pens. But one of the things that's a little frustrating is uh, the legal profession is always about 10 years behind the rest of the world. And wills and trusts still need an actual ink signature and they still need an actual notary. And that requires at least one in-person meeting. And uh, we're very respectful on how people do this, but it still has to happen. So that's been one of the new things. That was a non-issue before. People come in, you shake hands, and so well, you hug, you know, and, and, you, uh, and you just kind of get it done. So all that's changed. The method of planning has changed. It's not as in-person. Um, there's been some practical frustrations, and it's not frustrations with the world. It's just, you know, this is the way it is now, and we just have to figure this out. And uh, there's no ideal way. It's a little less personal. I think uh, the big, so those are, those are the big things that I've seen um, is, is just getting it done. And how do we help people who may be vulnerable to get it done in a way that's very safe? Um, and we do our best that we're able to. So, Phil, I mean, if somebody wants to, um, you know, wants to talk to you and, and get you to help them, um, you know, with their estate planning or, or if they've already done it and they want somebody to look over it, how do they get in touch with you? We are at, uh, online is, is always a, a very good way if they have access, uh, www.stonearchlaw.com. If we can't help you in your state, we do have resources, so give us a call. You can also call us at 612-345-7496, uh, 612-345-7496. I'm always happy to, to chat or provide a referral. If, if we can. So and then, but if I'm going to reach out to you and stuff, I don't have to have everything already planned out and laid out or anything like that, do I? Absolutely not. I uh, Thank you for that. We, uh, most people who come in, I think, just know they need to get something done. We, uh, and most attorneys that do this, will, will oftentimes have a, a, an initial phone call where they just ask a couple questions about you, just very broadly, kind of what are your priorities, and oftentimes they give you kind of a cost estimate right there, and it's, it's just a free call. Uh, we certainly do that. If you decide to move forward with a planning meeting, there's oftentimes a questionnaire, and doing your best on that is really all that's required. It just helps you to think through some of your, your important people in your life. And to the extent you're able to do that, that, you know, you come in and, and we'll guide you the rest of the way. Your attorney or whomever you choose should be able to guide you the rest of the way. You do not need to know anything going into this. Okay. So for, um, if, if the listeners want to get a hold of uh, your book, uh, Trustee University, the guidebook to the best practices for family trustees, where, where can they find this? That's uh, Amazon's the best way. Uh, look for Trustee University, or you can search for my name, fill up with one L, J, Bruce, and, uh, and it'll come up. And it's, uh, my hope is it's a resource for those family fiduciaries who maybe didn't realize what they were getting into and also don't realize when they need help. Sometimes that's the biggest question. Great. So, to, you know, Bruce, uh, Phil, I really appreciate you joining us today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a lot of great information uh, that you provided uh, to us. And, you know, so today our guest has been Phil Roos with Stone Arch Law Office. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Gary. It's my pleasure. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. 
To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>